0: You can keep that lengthy passage open as we come to study it today, Genesis 24. We're thinking today about a covenant love story, a covenant love story. There are some parts of the Bible that we really struggle to understand no matter how many times we read them. Perhaps you've read through some of the prophets like Ezekiel or Zechariah. And no matter how many times you read the passage, you, you just think without the help of commentaries or listening to some teaching in this, I just do not understand what it's saying. The Apostle Peter even says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that there are some parts of Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Uh, so that's a comfort to us. If Peter was able to say that, we shouldn't feel too bad if we find that to be the case. There are other passages of the Bible that Christians should be able to read and understand pretty well. Uh, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, for example, or Daniel in the lion's den, or Daniel's three friends not bowing down to the golden statue. We know those passages, hopefully as well, from the time that we're little children. We, We learn the main point of those stories. But there are also some passages that we read, and perhaps we assume that we know what they're about or why they're there, and because we assume we know what they're about, perhaps we Might miss the main purpose or message of the passage. (coughs) I think Genesis 24 could fall into that last category. It's an absolutely wonderful story. It's actually the, the single longest story in the Old Testament. 67 verses long. And there's romance in this passage. It ends with a wedding at sunset. What could be more romantic than that? But we shouldn't assume that that is all that this story is. Every part of the Bible we turn to is a part of God's story. story of God creating the world, seeing the sinful fall of human beings, ruining his world. God promising to save the world, to save a group of people, and then ultimately to bring in a new world. Genesis 24 has to find a place in part of that bigger story. It has a bit of romance in it, and most of us probably like a bit of romance now and again. But we need to appreciate that it is also a story about what God is doing, how he is continuing to work to his plan of bringing life to the world through the covenant that he has made with Abraham. And so we have here a love story, but a covenant love story. The story begins with Abraham's priority. Abraham's priority. We've reminded ourselves virtually every week so far about the covenant promises God made with Abraham when he first called him. Genesis 12 I will bless you and you will be a blessing. In you, God said, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately, from our perspective today, we know that all of God's covenant promises to Abraham. They are headed towards, they are fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus Christ. I've quoted to you several times Paul's words in Galatians. We today, we believers in Jesus Christ are the true offspring of Abraham. If we share in Abraham's faith. So we know where the story is headed. But to get to Jesus thousands of years later, there needs to be this unbroken line of descendants from Abraham. God has promised him descendants who are going to fill the earth. He he's going to have children and they, they will have children and so forth down through the generations. But There's a problem as we begin Genesis 24. Abraham only has one legitimate covenant son, Isaac. And Isaac has no wife and therefore no children. Not only that, but Abraham is a very, very old man. And his wife, Sarah, has already died. And so if God's covenant promises are going to keep going, something needs to be done. Isaac needs a wife. And immediately the passage shows us how seriously Abraham takes this. If you look at Genesis 24, verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. That action of putting the hand under the thigh, uh, I'm sure none of us engage in that when we want to make a contract or strike an agreement with anybody. But it was a way in that culture of uh, of, of swearing someone to a very personal, serious commitment. Uh, it's a rather intimate part of the body to touch the, under the thigh. And, and that's saying, this is how much I trust you. This is how seriously you're to take this. Abraham wants his servant to travel all the way back to Abraham's remaining family to find a wife for Isaac. That's a journey of just over 500 miles Assuming Abraham's servant made good time and didn't run into any problems, it would take him just over three weeks to get there. And then, of course, another three weeks to get back. This is a huge commitment that Abraham is asking this man to make. In verse 3, he says that the servant must not take a Canaanite wife for Isaac. So he is not to allow Isaac to marry one of the pagan neighbours In the promised land. Nor is he is is he to allow Isaac to leave the promised land himself in search of a wife. He even says in verse eight that if the servant can't persuade a woman from Abraham's own family to come back with him as Isaac's wife, then even then Isaac is still to remain in Canaan. But Abraham has great faith that that will not be needed. That that won't happen. Just look at what Abraham says in verse seven. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. See the faith that Abraham has here in the covenant promises of God. Abraham now is a very old man. He's well over the age of a 100. But his priority is still To honour the covenant promises of God. To insofar as it depends upon him to secure that covenant for another generation. And that means finding a wife for Isaac. It would have been much easier for Abraham to arrange a marriage for Isaac with some local people group. We've seen recently in Abraham's life his pagan neighbours in Canaan seem to respect him they realize that even if they don't worship Abraham's God, Abraham's God has blessed Abraham abundantly. He's wealthy, he's prosperous. The fact that camels keep being mentioned in this passage sort of underlines that. Camels were a complete novelty. They were only the wealthiest people had camels at this, ta- at this stage in human history. And so the Canaanites respect Abraham and what would typically have been done would have been that if you're a wealthy person, in a foreign land, you want to marry into some of the locals and secure your family financially and materially. And the Canaanites would have been queuing up to arrange a marriage with Isaac because they realized the blessing of God in Abraham's life, as verse 1 mentions. But here, Abraham's priority is not money or increased status or security for Isaac, Abraham's priority is keeping the covenant secure. And that means, as inconvenient as it may be, his servant has to go on this thousand mile trip on a wife search for Isaac. It might not seem necessary or practical in the world's eyes, but with the eyes of faith, it makes total sense. Total sense. And likewise for Christians today, there are decisions we might have to make that seem totally illogical to our unbelieving friends or unnecessary to our unbelieving neighbours. But if our priority is Abraham's priority, namely to remain faithful to God, to honour his covenant, then they are decisions that we have to take. One obvious application of this is for our own children and young people as you one day perhaps think about who to marry. I'm sure for some of the younger boys and girls this morning that is not just a priority at the moment. In fact, the whole notion of it might sound very bizarre. But honestly, boys and girls, for the vast majority, the day will come when you have to think about who you're going to marry. And rule number one, boys and girls and young adults, you only marry another Christian. And that's not just the implication of this story. It is the clear teaching of the rest of the Bible as well that you should only, uh, if you're going to go out with someone, and the whole purpose of that is obviously to see if you're suitable to be married together. So even at that stage, it is to be a believer. 1 Corinthians 7:39 A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, in other words, only to another believer. 2 Corinthians 6:14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Abraham couldn't know, humanly speaking, that his servant would find a woman who would share faith with Isaac's God. The test would be, in many ways, whether having heard the servant tell his story, whether she was willing to go. Whether she believed him and was willing to come. That would be her faith in action, so to speak. But Abraham was adamant that it had to be a believer who came. It was to be a believer or no one at all. And likewise for believers today who eventually want to get married, it must be a believer, another believer, or no one at all. And of course, even once you've narrowed it down to believers, there's a lot of questions you might need to ask about who to marry. But a believer is the bare minimum requirement. And like Abraham, this may mean that a Christian seems to be in a very strange position in the eyes of unbelieving neighbours. Perhaps they're young and gifted and good job, attractive in many different types of ways, but staying single unless a believer is willing to consider marriage with them. But we can apply this beyond just a decision about who you marry. I would imagine that if some people know how much the members of this church and many other churches give to our church, they would think, why? Why? Why are you giving that much? Some of our young people are giving up a week of their summer holidays. A week where perhaps they could have been getting paid in a summer job. And they give it up to give out leaflets inviting people in their town to church. Or going to a different town to invite people there to that church. Or running a children's camp or getting good Christian teaching. People think, what? What? Do you not go to church enough the rest of the year? You're young, you have so many opportunities. Go off and enjoy yourself, the world would say. Why worship twice on the Lord's Day? Why would a, a young or an older man leave behind a good job, a secure future for himself and his family to become a pastor or uh, to become a missionary along with his family? Or, or why, would it, why would a, a young woman or or anyone, any young believer, married or otherwise, choose to do that, to go to the mission field? The answer is the same for us as it was for Abraham. Priorities. Priorities. If the priority of our lives, friends, is love for God, honouring God, obeying God, being in the service of the kingdom of God, then we might well end up making decisions that the world thinks are a joke, but which we know Are the right decisions. And so, whether you are single or married today, may it be for the glory of God. Whether you choose to get married someday, may it be for the glory of God. Whatever you choose to do with your life and your money and your gifts, may our first priority, friends, be the glory of God. Abraham's priority. But then we also see in this story a believer's prayers. And God's provision, a believer's prayers and God's provision. And this is really the second main section of the chapter, which is most of the chapter, verses 10 to 57. Part of the reason this chapter is so long is because the main part of the story is told twice. Abraham's servant travels all the way to Nahor in Mesopotamia. He goes to the well, he meets Rebekah, he ends up having dinner with her family and the whole story is recounted all over again. You think, well, why is so much of this chapter repeating, uh, repeating itself? Why is the story given to us twice? Well, why does anybody tell a good story more than once? Because it's a good story. Some of you have heard maybe a member of your family tell the same old story many, many times. Why do they keep telling it? Because they believe, even if no one else might believe it, they believe it's a good story worth telling. And this is a story worth telling because it's a story, as we'll think more later, that emphasizes God at work in the circumstances of the life of Abraham's servant and the circumstances of Rebecca and her family. Although it's a long story, we're not going to go, certainly don't have time to go verse by verse through it. The main thrust of it, friends, the main purpose of it is that we see prayers answered and God providing. Prayers answered And God providing. This servant of Abraham's, he's one of the unnamed and unsung heroes of the Bible. He must have been a very godly, trustworthy man. He was we're told at the beginning of the passage he's over everything in Abraham's household. He's Abraham's right hand man. And he has clearly come to share Abraham's faith in Abraham's God, because he begins this search for a wife for Isaac with prayer. Look at verse twelve. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. And so he arrives in this place and he immediately prays. Ralph Davis comments that the The approach of Abraham's servant is, quote, to mix circumstances with prayer and see what happens. Mix circumstances with prayer and see what happens. I quite like that advice. He gets himself into a place where he's likely to find the kind of woman he's looking for. But he also takes time to pray specifically for the kind of woman he's looking for. Again, not bad advice for those wondering who to marry but also for believers more generally. Mix circumstances with prayer and see what happens. Well, what does happen? God provides. And he provides wonderfully and abundantly, more than perhaps the servant could ever have hoped for. And verse 15 and following, this is, every detail that we get here is very intentional from the author. It's emphasizing to us that Rebecca not just meets the servant's expectations, she far surpasses the servant's expectations. Look what it says in verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, that's the Hebrew way of saying, check this out. Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So just as Abraham has been wanting, just as the servant has been praying, she's from Abraham's extended family. She's a What is she, a second cousin or something, or a cousin once removed, whatever way you want to put it, of Isaac? The young woman was very attractive in appearance, we're told. She had a water jar on her shoulder, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand. And gave him a drink. So she immediately is answering the prayers. God is answering the prayers through Rebecca's actions, that the servant had prayed. The fact that she is first on the scene, <coughs> the fact that she is willing to do the job of fetching water, a difficult, hard job that in itself suggests that she's a girl who is willing to do hard work. But she's also willing to provide for a total stranger. She, she gladly, quickly shows him hospitality. We thought about the importance of that in that culture uh, with Abraham and the whole incident in Sodom in chapters 18 and 19. It's worth remembering, by the way, this man wasn't by himself. We're told a couple of times in the passage, there's a whole party of men with him. So um, she, she wouldn't have been thinking, who's this weird man speaking to me? He would have been able to introduce himself a little bit. And she would have seen there's a whole party of people with him. But the point is, she immediately offers to provide for their needs. She, she offers to get water for all the camels, all 10 of them. And one writer says, based on the likely size of Rebecca's jar and how much a camel needs to drink after a long journey, she might have been running back and forth, refilling her jar between 80 and 100 times to, to, uh, to quench the thirst of all these camels. So here's a beautiful young woman, not afraid of hard work, willing to provide for strangers in a way that would have been customary, an answer to the servant's prayer. And, of course, a member of Abraham's extended family. So Rebecca runs and tells her family all about this. The servant is taken in to Bethuel's home. Uh, He's made to sit down. He's invited to eat, but he's so keen to speak that he he says, I'll not eat until I've told you what I have to say. So he recounts the whole story and it all comes down to this in verse 49. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, If you're going to be the answer to our prayers. If you're going to allow Rebecca to come with me and to become Isaac's wife. Over to you. One writer says the servant shows just the right balance of graciousness. And yet godly pushiness. (laughs) He does have a job to do. He's he's polite. He he tries to be as as, uh, gracious and polite as he can be. But at the end of the day. It comes down to this, are you going to let Rebekah come or not? But just look at the wonderful response of Rebekah's family in verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Notice how they use the name of God there. They've, they've listened to this man. We don't know. Maybe they had heard a little bit from Abraham over the years of all that was going on in Canaan. But regardless, they, they recognize here God the Lord, the covenant God of Abraham. He is at work. And I love the way they say it. The Lord has spoken. God didn't speak audibly to anyone in this chapter. We've seen him do that with Abraham sometimes. That he directly speaks to Abraham But what they rightly are saying here is that God has spoken through the circumstances that have brought them to where they are. He has guided and he has provided in what human beings would just call the coincidences and the circumstances that brought them to this point. And isn't that so encouraging for us, friends, to know that sometimes God speaks through his word. And it's certainly true that when we need guidance, uh, even in the course of our ordinary devotional life, God will speak. God will guide us directly by his word. But sometimes as well, he speaks through circumstances. We often pray for ministers who are under call from more than one congregation. I've been in that situation myself, of course. And what do we pray for them? We pray that God will guide them. And from experience, he does through his word, as well as through the various circumstances, providences, coincidences, whatever you want to call them, of our lives. Maybe you pray for an opportunity to witness to a family member or, or a friend who isn't saved. And having prayed, you put yourself in positions where you're likely to speak to them, where you can ask them about their lives, ask them about what they're going through, ask them about where they stand with the Lord. And perhaps you might just find that God has been so arranging things in their life at that moment that you have spoken at just the right time. Again, thinking of our young people and, and marriage. Some well-meaning Christians have gotten themselves entirely tied up in knots. They've agonized over big decisions like marriage or work or whatever it might be. How do I know who to marry even if, even if I am committed to only marrying a believer? Well, is there someone you like? Someone who has a godly character, like Rebecca did, someone whose company you enjoy, to whom you've been drawn for whatever reason, for whatever circumstances God has used, and then perhaps it's worth pursuing. And because you're both believers and you'll conduct your relationship accordingly, it's not the end of the world if it doesn't work out. It might be a bit of heartache, might be a heartbreak even in some cases, but God overrules. And in due time, if it's his will for you to marry, through circumstance and prayer, he will lead you to the right person. See how God provides in the midst of ill health, in the midst of grief, when there are big life decisions to make for yourself or your family. Mix circumstances with prayer. And when God does provide, we should be careful to return thanks and praise to him for it. We really ought to be thanking him more often, at least personally I know I should, for for, for what we would call little things. Safety, safety in travel, the food in our fridge, the abundance of little things that we take for granted day and daily. Notice how Abraham's servant responded when he saw how God provided for him, verse twenty-six. The man bowed his head. And worship the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Let's imitate this man, friends, whether it's big things like finding a godly spouse, or smaller things as we would see them, like finding food in the fridge again tomorrow morning. When we pray and God provides, return in prayer and praise, thanking him for all his goodness to us. So Abraham's priority, a believer's prayer and God's provision. And then the final thing that we see in this story is a picture of God's covenant love. A picture of God's covenant love. Bethuel and Laban are right in verse 51 when they say the Lord has spoken. God is ultimately the most significant person in this passage. He brought everyone and everything together. He's provided wonderfully for Abraham. But why has God provided? What's the ultimate purpose of Rebecca coming to, be, to become Isaac's wife? Well, it takes us back to what we considered at the very beginning. This love story is another part of God's story. The story of his covenant love, his never-ending, never-giving-up love for his people. And so, friends, it's for God's own name's sake, for God's reputation as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God that he provides for Abraham exactly what he wanted, more perhaps than he could have wanted, given what we're led to believe about Rebecca's godly character. After a night to sleep on it, Rebecca's father and brother and mother are a bit hesitant to send her off in the morning. It all sounded good that first night, and they're all saying, oh, this is all wonderful, and they crack open the food and drink and have a good time. In the morning, prospect of their daughter, uh, going 500 miles away, maybe never to be seen again, maybe not so appealing. And so Bethuel and Laban ask, uh, there's a bit of haggling here. And, um, uh, uh, and the servant of Abraham, he's very keen to get going. He maybe knows the longer we draw this out, the harder it's going to be for me to get this girl away from her family. And so in the morning, Bethuel and Laban ask Rebecca directly. Look at verse 58. Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Just consider what Rebecca is committing herself to here. Possibly only a teenager. She's going to have to travel 500 miles away from home. Yes, some of her servant girls are going with her, but she's essentially alone. Travelling with this group of men she's never met to marry a man she's never met. The only explanation for it is that having heard all about the Lord God his covenant and his promises and his blessings upon Abraham. Having heard about the steadfast love of God for Abraham and Isaac. Rebecca has faith to go. And there's this very idyllic little scene to conclude the story. Verse 62 says that as Abraham's servant and Rebecca arrive back in Canaan. It's evening time. Isaac is out in the field. Our translation says he was meditating It's a difficult word to translate, but that's what most translations go for. Perhaps he's thinking about what might happen soon in his life. He's perhaps praying about what his father has sent his servant to do. And then verse 63. Behold. Watch this. Look at this. Isaac sees those camels finally coming home. Verse 63 says that Isaac... Lifted up his eyes. Verse 64 says that Rebecca lifted up her eyes. The two of them see each other. And soon they're walking towards each other. And verse 65 says that Rebecca put a veil over her face. That's something that a betrothed woman did in that culture. A woman who was engaged to be married. Rebecca knows that this is her wedding day. And verse 67 finishes it off. Says they're married Rebecca becomes Isaac's wife. And notice the last personal little detail. Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. See, God is working to his big grand glorious plan here. But God also, in the midst of his grand glorious plan, cares about the personal needs of his people. Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And in Isaac and Rebekah here, they, they, they of course become a new family unit. They set up their own married home. And we see in them, friends, not just a great love story and a bit of romance. We see God's covenant secured. Psalm 105, verse 7, we'll sing in a moment. It says, he is the Lord our God. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. God provides and so God gets the glory. He promised Abraham that the covenant promises to him would pass down through another generation to his children's children. And now through what has happened here, they will. The name Rebekah, pronounced in Hebrew is similar to the name Abraham. Both names sound similar to the Hebrew word for blessing. And just as God promised Abraham that he would bless him and make him a blessing to others, the implication is that he will now do the same thing through Rebekah. That like Sarah, Rebecca is now a covenant matriarch. She will be the means by which God's covenant passes down to the next generation. And so the covenant, friends, is secured in Isaac and Rebecca. But Isaac and Rebecca are also a picture for us of the covenant one day to be fulfilled. They're a picture of the covenant one day to be fulfilled. They are, if you like, a little pointer for us, a little signpost to what will happen at the very end of time. When a great and glorious and beautiful bridegroom will appear and take his bride unto himself, the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And like every married believing couple, Isaac and Rebekah provide that picture for us of Christ and his church. Abraham's servant left the relative comfort of Canaan at Abraham's command, traveled to a distant land to go and find Rebekah. And likewise, Jesus Christ left the perfect comfort of heaven at his father's command to come down to earth to find his bride. Rebekah was asked the question, Will you go with this man? And when she saw Isaac coming towards her, she walked towards him in faith, a bride ready for her husband. And likewise, Christ's messengers preach the good news of Jesus' invitation to sinners today, like a bridegroom offering life to his bride. Perhaps the question comes to you today, will you go with this man? Will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he calls you? However much he might have you sacrifice for him. Will you, like Abraham and his servant and Isaac and Rebekah, make God's covenant and kingdom the priority of your life? Will you go with this man? In faith, will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? The very end of the Bible gives us this glorious picture Of Christ and His church. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, we have the call and response of the bridegroom and his bride. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. How do you respond to the grand, glorious, covenant love story of Jesus Christ who has loved us and given himself up for us? Will you go with this man? Will you make him and his covenant love the priority of your life? Amen.